0: Hi, this is whom We Proclaim with John Fonville. The Psalms encourage God's chosen people to worship with beautiful and familiar phrases such as, make a joyful noise, enter His gates with thanksgiving, and give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Today we're looking at another element of historic church liturgy, and that is the call to worship our faithful God who treasures His people. Let's listen now to this message called, Make a Joyful Noise. Here's part one.
1: Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Psalm 100. And so the Lord says to us, he says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. So, as we come back to our study on liturgy, let me just give you a little bit of an introduction to get your thoughts back into this series that we were looking at. And to remind you of this, is that every church has a liturgy. Now, it's true that every church doesn't use the word liturgy, but every church has and follows some prescribed order. Even Quakers who gather in a house and sit in a circle until the light goes off in them follow some prescribed order. That's about as low liturgy as you're going to get, but yet they have a liturgy. And so even though in order of service, a liturgy is not well thought out and planned, every church will follow some kind of order. This means that every church is liturgical. Perhaps you've heard of this word liturgical, the liturgical church. Every church is liturgical because every church employs forms in an order of worship. And so since this is, this is true, liturgy is important, it's very important, and it's important for many reasons. I'm not going to rehearse them, but I'm just going to rehearse one for you as we begin to think about this series again. Liturgy is important because the gospel is important. Everything always goes back to the gospel, doesn't it? Um, the gospel is paramount in everything, including the church's worship. The corporate worship of the church is intended to be a reenactment of the reception of the gospel. The church's corporate worship, uh, James Smith says, is, quote, a Trinitarian gospel reenactment. Liturgy matters because every Lord's Day, the liturgy proclaims, or it should proclaim, The unfolding story of redemption, this whole gospel drama. You see, the gospel is the greatest story ever told. And because of that, it is of paramount importance that we tell the story correctly, right? We want to get this story right. And so the liturgy is not a series of randomly selected events that can be shuffled about like a deck of cards, um, nor are the various parts of the liturgy set in stone like the Ten Commandments. There's flexibility, and there is there is freedom in the liturgy. I'll just give you a couple of examples from church history. Um, there are variations in both custom and in order between John Calvin's Strasbourg liturgy, uh, Cranmer's uh, Book of Common Prayer liturgy for the Reformed Church of England. And Martin Luther's um, Latin and German Mass, there was was differences in custom and order between all three of these reformers' liturgies that they wrote for their people in their churches. But in all three Reformed traditions, Reformed, Anglican, Lutheran, whatever it was, these Reformation-based churches, the basic elements of the liturgy are present So that the Bible's narrative plot line, the unfolding story of redemption, so that the gospel is always clearly recognizable in every service. So as you think about liturgy, there there has to be a, a clear sense of movement from point A to point Z. There's to be a logical order to the various parts of the liturgy. No individual part stands in isolation from the service as a whole. It all works together to tell this unfolding story to you each week. What do these different parts do? Each part confesses, reflects, and bestows upon us Jesus in its unique way And it permits the worshipers who are present, that is God's gathered guest, to respond to the gifts that are given to them and that are received with appropriate thanksgiving, with appropriate praise, appropriate confession of sin, appropriate belief in the gospel. And so that's what this liturgy does. And so this brings us to the eighth element in the liturgy that we're going to look at, which is the call to worship. Do you have a call to worship each week in the liturgy? And so the way it works is that having confessed our sins and having received God's assurance of his forgiveness through the absolution, the declaration of pardon, the gospel pronounced over your life to repentant sinners who are trusting in Christ, the way is then opened up for us to respond to God, the gift giver, who comes and summons us. To gather before him. I want you to understand that, you know, what takes place here on Sunday morning is of monumental, cosmic importance. This is no small thing to come to church. This is no small thing to be summoned by the king of the universe to come before him in worship. This is a huge thing. And so, liturgy is action. Liturgy is action. Because liturgy is first and foremost the triune God's action to us. God calls us through the voice of a minister to worship. He calls us through the voice of this psalmist to worship. He calls, as you'll see in a moment, all the earth to worship. We have, we have been created to be worshipers. You will worship something because that's why God created you. And so there are many different examples of a call to worship in the scriptures. But I had you turn to Psalm 100, which is a wonderful example because this is one of the call to worships that we use quite often in our church. And so we've already read Psalm 100, so I want you to look at it. We're going to look at Psalm 100 this morning and just spend some time here, because I want you to see what the psalmist has to say about God's call to worship and why we have a call to worship in the liturgy. The Lord, as I said, through the psalmist is calling his people to come before him in worship to specifically give thanks. Thanks. In fact, this is the only psalm in the Psalter that is explicitly identified as a psalm for giving thanks. Isn't that interesting? Now, there are many psalms in the Psalter and many verses in the Psalter that call us to give thanks, but this is the only psalm in the Psalter that is explicitly identified as a psalm for giving thanks to God in worship. And so there are two ways that the Lord calls his people to worship and worship to give thanks in the psalm that I want you to look at. There are two ways. These two ways that that the Lord calls his people to worship in order to give thanks, these two ways remind us who are the Lord's people of the Lord's great benefits to his people. And it provides us an abundant amount of reasons for giving great thanks to God as He calls us to come together and worship. So, here, look at verses, look at verses one to three. In verses one to three, you can summarize it like this The Lord calls His people to worship in order to give thanks for what He has done for us. He calls us to gather together in worship in order to give thanks to him for what he has done for us. So let's look at verses 1 through 3. Look at all these imperatives. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Now this make a joyful noise, the word noise literally in the Hebrew, you know what it means? Some of you who are not comfortable with this particular type of tradition might not like this. It means to shout. And if you look it up in the Hebrew, it's interesting. You know what it means in the Hebrew? To shout. <laughs> That's what it means. Um, the Lord's calling you to do this. This isn't charismatic. This isn't Pentecostal. This isn't, you know, assembly of God, church of God. I've, I've been in all those worship services. I know what it's like. It's, they're actually sometimes quite fun. Because um, you can shout all you want, and nobody cares, but you know, and, um, but if you go in certain churches and you shout, they're like, uh, "There's a door." <laughs> Get out of here quick. Um, make a joyful shout to the Lord. God's calling you to do this. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. This is why we sing. We don't sing because we like the band. I mean, the band, they're just off the charts good, right? Um, Jared, just I'm so thankful for him. He wrote Psalm 100 to music. We opened up with it today. I wanted to do that since I'm preaching on Psalm 100. We sang Psalm 100 this morning, if you didn't know. and It's one of my favorite songs, Jared. No, I mean, it's really good. And then we sang holy, 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 and Jared wrote all the music to that as well. It's beautiful. The arrangement is just beautiful how he did that. It's really good. That's why we sing. We don't sing just because Jared's a great arranger and songwriter. He is, but we sing because the Lord says to you, come into his presence with singing. So we sing. Know that the Lord, he is God. God. There's another imperative. Know this, and we're going to come back to that. So here's what he's done for us. Notice this imperative. Know that the Lord, he is God. We have all these imperatives that call us in worship. The psalmist is telling us that all genuine worship rests on the knowledge of who God is and what he has done what he has done specifically for us. Um, I commended a book this morning in primetime that I would commend to all of you, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, one of the greatest Christian classics ever written. Read that book, Knowing God. We cannot rightly give thanks to God and worship God to a, to a God who is unknown to us, Right? So, what does the psalmist want us to know what the Lord has done for us? Well, look at the rest of verse 3. Look at this. He's, he, he says in verse 3 Know that the Lord, He is God. What do we know? It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. That's what He wants us to know. What is He saying? Well, the, the phrase, it is he who made us, could be a reference to God's work as creator. He wants us to know God as our creator. No, it is certainly true that God is our creator. Genesis 1:26, we have been made or created in God's image. And so it is perfectly right to give thanks to God as our creator. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, all the elders of heaven are bowing down in worship to, to the Lord... And in Revelation 4.11, listen to the basis of their praise and thanks to God. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. John Calvin, speaking of God's creation and worship, he says, there is not one blade of grass, there is no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. It's very appropriate to give thanks to God for being our creator. But I don't think that's exactly what the psalmist has in mind here. I want you to look at it again. Very carefully. I want you to see what the psalmist has in view here, which is made more clear in verse three if you read the whole verse together. It is he who made us. Who is us? In this context, us is Israel, God's chosen people. It is he who made us, Israel. It is he who made God's chosen people. And we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The psalmist, in calling us to worship, to give thanks to God, wants us to know what God has done for us so that that what we know what God has done for us will elicit in us great thanksgiving so that we shout to God. What is it that will make you in worship shout with a joyful noise to God? Listen carefully, and the psalmist is going to tell us here. The psalmist wants us to know that the Lord has chosen a sinful, undeserving people to be his own prized possession. Will that make you shout? Well, just keep listening. I hope you do at the end of it. The psalmist calls us to give thanks to the Lord for having chosen a sinful people to be his own. You'll recall back in the Old Testament, since we're under the Old Covenant here in Psalms, back in Deuteronomy 7, how the Lord reminds Israel of why he called them to be his own people. Listen carefully. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, election, to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So out of all the people on the face of the earth, why Israel to be his treasured possession? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the peoples. But the Lord chose you and set his love on you to be his treasured possession because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath. That he swore to your fathers. What is that? It's the Abrahamic covenant, the gospel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Abrahamic covenant. He's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The Lord says he chose Israel to be his treasured possession, to be his people and the sheep of his pasture because he loved them and he was being faithful to the covenant promise that he had made with their patriarchs, their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He did not choose them because of any merit or inherent goodness or righteousness that was in them because he just told them they had none. He took them from being slaves in Egypt, redeemed them to be his treasured people, his treasured possession, because he had made a covenant promise to Abraham and their forefathers centuries before, and he was being faithful to keep it because of his steadfast love. And the psalmist is reflecting on this, and he says, oh, make a joyful noise to the Lord. We are his people. We are his treasured possession. He has redeemed us from slavery and made us his sons. The Lord chose Israel to be his treasured possession. In Exodus 19, verses 4 and 6, listen to what the Lord says to Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on my eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, the Mosaic covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so, notice in verse 1 something very, very important. Verse 1 is a universal call to worship. The psalmist says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. And what does it say? What is the scope? All the earth. All the earth to give thanks. Very interesting because this call to worship extends not just to Israel, who was God's treasured people, but to Gentiles as well. Already in the old covenant, Which had already been promised in the Abrahamic covenant. You shall be what? You'll have a son who will be a blessing to all the earth. Right? There was always this cosmic scope and mind of God's redemptive plan for all people, not just Israel. So that under the new covenant, God's people are no longer restricted and identified with one particular geopolitical nation on earth. Israel. Israel. The psalmist is already looking forward to God's universal redemptive plan and calling all the earth, Jew and Gentile, to worship. And so in the new covenant, the church is no longer limited to the physical descendants of Abraham. And the only nation now that is in covenant with God is God's new global nation, which is his new covenant church. I want you to listen to 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Peter picks up on the language that the Lord uses of Israel in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6, which I just read to you about God's chosen people. He applies it to the church in the New Covenant. And Peter says of the church, taking Exodus 19, 5 through 6, he applies it to the church. And listen to what he says about, listen, you, you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The church, Peter says, is a chosen race. It is a royal priesthood. It is God's holy global cosmic nation that he's in covenant with through his son, And the new covenant, and you and I are a people for his own possession. The identical language used of the people of Israel, now given to the global church under the new covenant. And so despite the abrogation of the Mosaic national covenant by the obedience, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Colossians 2.14, right? The New Testament church hasn't replaced Israel. There's no such thing as replacement theology in the Reformed tradition, that doesn't exist. We haven't replaced Israel. In, 11, in Romans eleven seventeen. Paul says that God grafted the Gentiles into the people of God so that the same commendation given to Israel, a people for my own possession, we have been grafted into that privilege and have the same commendation, you are my privileged possession special people. And so grafting is not replacement, it is addition. Reformed theology teaches addition theology. It just gets bigger. It doesn't get smaller. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, as he's writing about the division between Jew and Gentile and what Christ has done to create one new people, You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's our Jew and Gentile together in one body. He himself is our peace who has made us both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do it? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both Jew and Gentile to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That is a mouthful Paul is just rejoicing in the work of Jesus, bringing together two groups of people who were hateful to each other. The ministry of reconciliation through the gospel so that in the church we have one race, one race that is in Christ.
0: That's John Fonville with Make a Joyful Noise Part 1 from the series The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests. We'll hear Part 2 next time right here. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.